From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Stem cells are invaluable raw materials of the body that allow for specialized approaches to medicine for specific tissues or organs. If under the right conditions, stem cells can mimic a kidney or lung cell, then researchers are able to mimic treatment for human biology outside of the body. Dr. Samira Musa and her lab at Duke University have created an organ-on-a-chip model that replicates kidney function outside of the body. On today's episode, Dr. Musa joins us to talk about the applications for this technology. Dr. Musa, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to Think Research. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be with you. Thank you. (laughs) So you're an assistant professor in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Duke and you have your own lab. Can you tell us a little bit about the focus of your lab? Yeah, um, first of all, thank you very much again. Um, So my lab really is under interface of um, engineering and medicine. And as you um, uh, mentioned, I hold a joint appointment in both biomedical engineering and also in the Department of um, Medicine. So a lot of our work is really focused on um, concepts from fundamental cell biology to um, stem cell biology engineering microenvironments to control stem cell behavior, basically telling stem cells what to become. We know that these cells have this um, remarkable capacity to self-renew, but also differentiate into almost any tissue in the body. But it's challenging to actually get them to become a desired cell type if you don't give them the proper signals. And sometimes the challenge also arises from not knowing what signals are required to get a cell to become, um, say, a heart cell or a lung cell or a kidney cell. So part of our um, uh, interest in the lab is trying to uncover some of the mechanisms or signals or cues that the cells need in order to get them to become a desired cell type. And a lot of interest in my lab is really in deriving kidney cells, um, but also we do some work with neuronal cells, um, but generally trying to find what environments we can provide these cells to become a desired cell type. Now, part of the reasons why we want to do this Mm -hmm. is to be able to develop models that would allow us to mimic human um, biology outside of the human body. So if you can imagine, if we can tell a stem cell to become a kidney cell uh, in a dish, then we can use that to study how human tissues and organs um, develop. And we can potentially develop models that would allow us um, to better understand human diseases. And um, naturally, if we're able to develop disease models, then we can use them as platform for discovering therapeutics Mm -hmm. um, in a way that would be directly relevant um, to humans. So these are some of the motivation and and the directions that we're also taking in the lab. Yeah, so you mentioned the kidney and that's Mm -hmm. one of the things I wanted to ask you about. Um, 
And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about that work and why you wanted to look at the kidney. Um, and I know that you've had grants um, from DARPA and other organizations to do some of this work. So tell us a little bit about why this is, why you focused on the kidney and um, maybe a little bit about this organ on a chip idea that some people might not be familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a really great question. And I should um, uh, mention that actually this work started as a challenge from DARPA. So that's really how I, I started it. When I was a postdoc, we, we were challenged by DARPA to develop models of about 10 different um, human organs, um, in vitro models that could be used to um, understand human biological responses and potentially connect the organs to study um, human pharmacokinetics, basically how the body um, responds to drugs and processes it, right? So one of the organs we could not engineer, at least we could not develop a functional model of the human kidney was because we didn't have access to human kidney cells. As you can imagine, to get human kidney cells would require a highly invasive procedure. And it's, it's also one of the organs that we know does not regenerate, um, at least the functional unit, one of the key functional units in the kidneys, which is the glomerulus. We don't have evidence that that functional unit can regenerate itself. So if a patient has damage to this part of the kidneys, they are more likely to progress to um, organ failure um, and, and because we, there's just no way to repair that. So that means that um, we didn't have a commercial source of these cells. And so without those cells, we wouldn't be able to develop these in vitro models. So for me, with a stem cell um, background and knowing that these cells have capacity to grow indefinitely, and if given appropriate cues to differentiate into a desired cell type, I thought, well, um, can we develop a method to tell stem cells to become the population of kidney cells that we don't have access to. And of course, it didn't take me too long to discover that there were no methods to do that. Mm. So we had to um, come up with a method. And so, um, but it was exciting and quite a motivating just knowing that there's so much about the kidneys that we don't yet know from both from a developmental standpoint and disease mechanisms. I knew that if we could do this, that is we could develop a method to um, derive the kidney cells that we wanted from stem cells, it could open up a whole new way for studying human kidney biology um, and developing models that would help us better understand disease and potentially even discover therapeutics. So I started off by trying, basically started off by trying to find out if we could come up with a method to tell stem cells to differentiate into the cells that we needed. And um, to make a long story short, we um, we successively um, accomplished that by deriving, by coming up with a method that allowed us to develop one of the most important cell types in the kidney, which are um, kidney glomerular protocytes. In fact, these cells work with vascular endothelial cells to form that filtration barrier in your kidneys where your blood gets filtered, where that's really at the interface where toxins get removed from the body. So you can imagine if that gets damaged, a patient cannot 
remove toxins from their body and that could lead to a whole lot of other um, complications. So for us, being able to derive the cells was a huge um, step forward, um, but we also happened to be in a, um, or I happened to be in an environment where um, we didn't do just the biology, but we really have the capability to also engineer tissues or um, uh, use concepts from um, microengineering approaches and even computer design uh, approaches at, at the VISA at the time to develop these in vitro models that would allow us to mimic a lot of um, the biophysics of an organ, like how fluid flows through an organ or a tissue, what kind of mechanical simulation or factors affect the tissue's um, uh, function. So we decided to engineer a model um, that would allow us to basically repopulate this engineered system with the cells that we derive from stem cells and essentially create an in vitro system that would recapitulate um, some of the structure and functional characteristics of that, of the kidney's function. Um, so that's really kind of how we started. And then we're able to build this model, which we call the organ on a chip system and, uh, and are now using it for various applications, including understanding how um, some of the mechanisms involved in tissue development, um, and also developing these platforms that we're now gaining better understanding of how the kidneys function, and how disease progresses, right? Yeah, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, like, what does this look like, this in vitro model of organ on a chip? Like, when you, when you use it, how do you, I guess, you talked about fluids flowing through and, and seeing how blood flows through organs. What does this actually look like? So um, you can think of, so the material itself, you can think of um, gummy bears. <laughs> like, so the texture of the material itself is like what gummy bears feel like. At least I think <laughs> of gummy bears when I think of, well, if I could turn this into food, what could we really make out of it? Um, so it's a polymer. And um, so it, it has this structure that is quite flexible. And you can imagine if you had um, uh, holes inside of a gummy bear, but um, there are multiple holes that separate different channels, right? So you have you create a channel that you can you can flush water through it, and it will come out a specific pipe line that you create. Mm. But we designed it so that we know that in the body you have multiple cell types, and the cells come together to form tissues, and you have different types of tissues in each organ that work together. So we created these fluidic paths in this chip um, that allow the cells to interface with each other. So you can imagine having dedicated path for blood to flow, but there's another separate path where um, when you filter molecules or you remove toxins from your kidneys, you know you pee it out as urine, right? But that's part of one of the ways we remove toxins from our body. So we have another channel where we can have that filtrate or the urine or pee um, mm -hmm. go and then come out. So doing that allow us to basically um, populate these separate channels with the specific cell types in the way in a way that resembles how they would be in the human body. And so we're able to connect these chips, almost like you go to the hospital and you're hooked up to machines. You can imagine these chips being hooked up to machines that allow them to um, have blood flowing or 
uh, or their urine being removed. Um, and so a setup like that allows us to study not just um, whether cells whether cells actually like the environment, but whether we can flow blood, whether when you flow a blood that has some kind of toxin in it, would it be removed to that urinary compartment that we created? And under what conditions is mm. that damage so that a patient might not be able to remove that toxin. And so that it gives us a lot of flexibility and um, really um, unprecedented ways to model some of these very complex biological responses completely outside of the human body, but in a way that's directly relevant to the patient. One other feature of this that um, I think is truly remarkable is just um, being able to couple this technology with IPS, um, induced pluripotent stem cell research. So you can, as you may already know, we can take any patient cell reprogram them into, it could be blood cell or um, skin cells, reprogram those cells into stem cells. And now that we have a method of telling stem cells to become kidney cells, that means that we can generate the kidney cells from any patient without going directly into their kidneys. We can take even cells from their urine or so in a very non-invasive way, get cells from the patient, reprogram them to stem cells, and we would have unlimited supply of these stem cells so that we can differentiate them into either kidney cells or lung cells, even if we want to see how their lungs work, mm -hmm. right? So that means that we're able to create models that are specific to a patient. So we could have you on a chip, we can have Andrea on a chip, right? <laughs> and it's a really, um, it, it's a powerful way to do um, personalized medicine because we know that the readouts that we see would be specific to that individual. And if you have a number of these chips, you can test a number of different patients or individuals and see what's common or different between how they respond to a drug or, or how um, a mechanism of disease um, unfolds in different populations so that drugs can potentially be discovered that either works for everybody or perhaps works best in some population and another set of um, therapeutic works best in another population. So um, I like to think of it almost as like a clinical trial in vitro or a clinical trial on a chip um, when we're able to test so many different patients' um, biology outside of that patient and potentially discover therapeutics that would still be directly relevant for that individual. Hmm. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the, so you talked about the like tissue kind of tissue regeneration issue and the kidney does not regenerate very well. So if you have damage to it, so how does this technology help with that? Could you grow a kidney and then transplant it into a body to replace a damaged kidney? So I mean, we hope to be able to do that, but I have to say that is um, one of, um, it's really one of the most exciting projects in, in the lab because it's also somewhat counterintuitive, right? Um, because we, it's just, we know that we know that we don't, there's no evidence that the kidneys can regenerate, right? But the fact that we can model the kidney's function um, in a um, using a device that's really small, like a um, computer memory stick, that's how small it is. Um, but you can imagine uh, making that bigger depending on how much functionality you wanna have or how many functional units you want to have. Um, but I imagine that if we can model the kidney's function um, on these, using these devices, 
then someday we could potentially use them to replace lost um, organs or tissues in patients. So that's one way I imagine this um, being useful for, um, uh, for potentially um, organ transplantation purposes or organ replacement, um, um, possibilities for organ um, replacement therapies. Another strategy that we're taking that is quite unique um, approach is just trying to say, well, we know this organ does not naturally regenerate or um, it's not very good at repairing itself when this particular functional unit is damaged. But we have an idea about what other organs can repair themselves. Like we know that um, liver, the liver, when cut off, if a portion of the liver is cut off, it can um, it can potentially regrow, right? Um, and we have some idea about other um, tissues in the body that have that kind of self renewal capacity. So what we're doing in my lab is saying, well, even though we know these cells aren't very good at doing these things what can we learn from the tissues that can do that to potentially engineer new um, pathways or modulate um, uh, signaling pathways to allow cells to respond differently to injury? So instead of maybe dying when they're injured, we can activate pathways that will allow them to self-renew, for example, and then re-specialize. Since we know how to tell stem cells to become the cells that we want, we believe that if we can tell the cell not to die or respond in a very um, adverse way, we might be able to change its fate. Have you identified any of these pathways? Like you mentioned the liver and um, how that organ is able to regenerate. Are there similar pathways between the kidney and the liver that you see like, okay, you know, when liver's damaged, this pathway's active. When kidney's damaged, the same pathway is not active. Yeah. So, because it's unpublished, I can't say too much. Oh, okay. um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm happy to share some really. So, we did find some, there are some pathways we thought. So we thought, well, if these cells don't regenerate, this pathway has to be downregulated, right? Mm -hmm. And it actually was the opposite um, of what we observed. So we then immediately thought, well, this must, this pathway must work differently in kidney cells mm -hmm. than in other cells like liver cells. So we did find that we know the signaling pathway is a network, right? So it's not right. a very linear process, but we did find that some of the interacting partners of these, um, uh, of some of the transcription factors that are regulated seem to be differentially modified or regulated in kidney cells than other tissues. Hmm. And so we believe that these differences in what classes of um, molecules or what classes of pathways are active or repressed around the same time could be a way to kind of have almost like a set of signals that would work in concert to regulate self-fate decision. So that has been really exciting. We started off with a hypothesis and it, it seemed to be um, something else, but, but it's leading us into kind of unexpected um, directions that's quite exciting. So we're still working on that, but hoping to um, um, have a story on that out um, soon. Okay, perfect. And um, one of the other areas you're looking at is um, drug toxicity. Um, and you, uh, you mentioned that, you know, obviously the kidney filters blood and removes toxins from the body. And 
this is really important in drug trials. Tell us about why that's important in drug trials and um, how you're using this technology. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we know that during drug discovery pipeline, the drug discovery pipeline, we have about 75% of drugs or more actually fail during clinical trials, um, mainly a lot due to toxicity to the kidneys. So, um, and one of the reasons why this is usually not um, observed before drugs get into human clinical trials is because, of course, we know that animals are often used to do some of these um, studies, and there, there were no good in vitro models of human kidneys. So, we envision that now that we have this platform that's able to mimic some of the key functional um, uh, um, characteristics of the human kidneys, we could also use it as a platform for screening drugs and finding out how drug candidates work on human tissue um, and potentially use that process to eliminate drugs that would be toxic. Because we know that this is also one of the functional unit in the kidney that if you if a drug damages it, it means that the patient could end up on dialysis or need an organ transplant. So if we can actually rule out some of these potential toxins in vitro before it goes into humans, it really could be a, a, an important way to bridge um, those animal studies and the human clinical trials. So that's really the key motivation um, for that part, given that we know so many drugs are actually nephrotoxic, um, even drugs that are um, over a lot of over the counter drugs are quite nephrotoxic. And um, although sometimes that kind of is just as gradual, but it builds up um, you know, over time and, and patients end up with um, chronic kidney disease and things like that. So mm -hmm. we hope that we can use this platform for um, screening some of these drugs. But you can imagine it could also be useful for discovering new drugs, right? Mm -hmm. So during the drug discovery and design um, phase, if you know that a drug, you know um, immediately that a drug is toxic to kidney tissues, for example, it might help um, um, influence or kind of guide the design strategy for optimizing the drug. Um, a chemist might decide, well, maybe I want to change some functional groups on this drug to make sure that it's not so toxic to these cells or these tissues and organs um, in the body. Um, so we're hoping that these technologies could be useful um, in all these different um, disciplines. Hmm. And so you would, so that would come into the, the drug discovery process pretty early, right? Like even before phase one, possibly? Absolutely. That's definitely my hope. Absolutely. Is to be able to use these models before it gets into human patients mm -hmm. right? so that we can identify what could potentially be toxic. We've had some, um, now that we're trying to validate the model for some of these applications, some of the things we're also doing is to look at drugs that we know failed during clinical trial um, because of toxicity to the kidneys, but were not predicted by the animal models that were used and then using these platforms to show that it can indeed um, predict some of these toxicities, or if the companies had used a technology like this, that they could have actually identified some of these toxicities. Um, so that I, I think that's that's just um, I think that just um, perhaps reassuring um, for a technology like that. But the true use of it, I think, the power really comes from being able to 
do the test before you even potentially cause a damage in a, in a patient. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. You talked about sort of being able to intervene or, you know, get that information about toxicity before it go, before a drug goes into a human. Um, how are you, I guess, trying to get this platform? How are you trying to foster adoption of the platform um, while you're validating it? it must, I imagine it must be complicated to say, go to a company like, I don't know, a big pharma company and say like, I'm working on it. We're pretty sure. Or have you had those conversations uh, with companies and what's kind of the response been? Yes, um, I think I probably can't talk too much about this, Um, but um, where we found, uh, I think I would say, yes, we are talking to some um, companies um, and I think I'll probably just have to leave it there. Um, Yeah, but we definitely are looking at, so for some of the companies that are interested in a technology like this, they want, they're interested in seeing whether a a, a predicts something they missed before, right? Mm. And so, um, so that they can truly see that, okay, you know, this could, because um, we know that when, when drugs fail during clinical trial, it's not just about, um, just about the company and their, their stocks and their wealth is affected, but the patients that are involved, mm. right? And the, the image uh, also can impact the company severely. And it could, I mean, people, companies sometimes shut down because of something like this and people mm. lose their jobs. So there, there's a lot of, there are a lot of other things that could um, adverse um, um, effects that could come out of um, something failing. So, and if you look at the amount of money that goes into these clinical trials, it's really just a fraction of it to test it on a platform outside of the human body, right? That could potentially mm-hmm. give you an information that um, you don't have. Because until you actually take that drug into patients, um, into human patients, you wouldn't fully know how they would respond, especially when the kidneys are involved. We know that um, a lot of lab animals, especially mice are used in these studies, but they don't develop kidney disease the way humans do. I mean, a lot of the drugs and um, chemicals that would destroy um, you and I's kidneys um, won't, would be fine. Mice would be fine eating like several times more of mm-hmm. that drug. So, they're simply not um, a good model for knowing everything about a drug. So it's important. Uh, and we know already that there are both developmental differences in how human kidney develops and mice um, kidneys develop as well as function, right? So it's um, it's perhaps not, um, not too, um, uh, I think it's conceivable that you will see differences um, in terms of how um, drugs are processed. So my hope is that this could be, this would be useful for really minimizing some of the challenges that occur when trying to extrapolate animal studies to, to human um, clinical trials. A lot of our current collaborations also include um, clinicians coming to actually we get a lot of clinicians coming directly to us, especially nephrologists, right? Because we, this is a field that um, there's still a lot of research going on there, the tools that they have available, it's it's really tough to find therapeutics that would work when it gets to humans. So we're getting a lot of collaborations with clinicians who have 
who either observe a certain pattern in patients in terms of how they are responding to therapies or how some families, you might have family members that are responding differently to some ther um, therapeutics, and they want to be able to model them, um, model that um, um, in vitro to better figure out how a patient is going to respond or why they're responding differently to a drug so that they can customize the therapy um, for them. So we're seeing, we definitely do have collaborations um, focused in that area as well. Hmm. The clinicians must be really excited about this. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, Dr. Musa, thank you very much uh, for, for your time. And uh, we really enjoyed having this conversation with you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.